Let's pray together. Father, your spirit goes where it wishes. It's mysterious. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would go forth this morning with your word, that it would blow among us, that it would accomplish all that you have purposed for it, and that our hearts may be changed, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks to all of you for such a warm welcome We are so excited to be serving with Church of the Holy Cross, and we're so encouraged to have Incarnation as our mother church. Aubrey mentioned we may not be as uh, beautiful over at Holy Cross, but um, I guess we can take some comfort. We have a good-looking mama, you know? Um, So the, the whole story of Incarnation, how the Lord brought together this group of people some years ago now. Now, from the very beginning, there was this desire not to just keep things to ourselves, to just huddle together, but there was a desire to come and receive from Jesus and to give that away, to see the work of God replicated and reduplicated in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, and then through planning of more churches. And so I want y'all to be encouraged that uh, our little budding fellowship, Church of the Holy Cross, it's, it's a part of this vision. And in fact, some of you know the full story that this church has its connections with other churches who've had this vision. And it goes all the way back. So there's a great lineage, there's a great history. And I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and thrilled that I get to be a part of such a, a warm movement of the spirit of the gospel. So thank you. Thank you for the way you've welcomed us, you've welcomed our family. Um, it's kind of sad that next week we're going to uh, ha- not be here Um, But we're also ready to get things going in Crozet. Thank you for your continued prayers and support. So we're continuing our study this morning in the Gospel of John. And if you notice the collect we just prayed, it was a collect where we prayed, set us free and give us the liberty of abundant life, which you have made known to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The very beginning of John's Gospel John, the gospel writer, he's preparing us to meet Jesus. And John says this in chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's a light shining in a dark world. And just before that verse, John says, In him, in Jesus, was what? Was life. And the life was the light of men. And so here we see this life, this light moving into the world. We see the sort of life that Jesus has on offer. In chapter 2, we see that Jesus is the life of the party. Jesus is bringing a kingdom of joy. He's bringing a kingdom of abundance. Later on in chapter 2, we see that Jesus, in his very life, he connects heaven and earth. He's the new temple. And we come to John chapter 3 this morning, and we see that Jesus is calling all of us to a new life, to a new birth, to be born again, to experience the sort of transformation that he's been demonstrating, the sort of life that he has in himself, he calls us to share in that life. And the language that he's using here in John chapter 3 is language of new birth. He says, 
you must be born again. Now, this is such a loaded term, right? I say born again, and immediately we're thinking about all sorts of different things. For some of us, we're like, yeah, that perfectly describes my experience and relationship with Christ. That's perfect language to capture how I understand how I came to faith. For some of us, maybe a little bit nervous, it sounds a little bit mystical, a little bit strange. For some of us, we hear that word and we think that's sort of a socio-political category, you know, the born-again Christians. So there's all sorts of ways that we think about this term, born again. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say here as he's dialoguing with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? What does he say, being born again, experiencing this new life, what does it really mean? So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at John chapter 3, what Aubrey just read for us. And I want us to ask three questions about this new birth, about this new life. I want us to ask um, what it is, how it comes, and what does it reveal. So the new birth, what it is, how it comes, and what it reveals. So the new birth, what is this exactly? What is Jesus talking about when he says we need to be born again? So we've seen, as we just mentioned in John, this invitation to follow Jesus, to join up with what he is doing. And I love it, at the end of John's gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, John, he gives us the purpose. He gives us his purpose statement. Here's the reason I'm writing all these things. He says in verse 31, I'm writing these things, John chapter 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. There it is again, this word life. You may have life in his name. Jesus is offering again and again and again new life to all who come to him, all who believe him, all who receive him. So we read in John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Jesus, he says, all who believe, all who turn to him and trust him, they have what? They have eternal life. This deep, lasting life. But really, this word eternal life, it means life in the age to come. You see, Jewish theology in these days, they thought the world was sort of broken up into two big movements. There was the present age, which is marked by all sorts of darkness, all sorts of problems, sin and injustice. And then there's the age to come. that would be marked by God's rule through his Messiah. So eternal life here, it's not just life that goes on and on forever and ever, although Jesus certainly means that. But eternal life here is referring to that sort of life experienced where God is king, where God rules. This is the sort of life that Jesus is bringing. Eternal life. Eternal life and kingdom of God, which Jesus talks about in this passage, are referring to the same reality. So Jesus says to enter in that sort of life, to come into this kingdom where Jesus is king, where he rules, to experience the life that he has, something is necessary. A new birth. Look at what Jesus says in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he says it again in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit. What? He cannot do what? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the first thing that we can say about this new birth that Jesus calls us to is that it's necessary to enter the kingdom of God. This age to come, this eternal life that Jesus is offering. And Jesus, I think we should note here, is emphasizing this new birth is necessary for individuals. Look at verse 3 again. Unless one, unless a person, unless an individual is born again, that person 
cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is talking in this passage with one such individual, a guy named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's someone who's very educated. He's got a PhD in theology. He's intellectually curious. He knows his stuff. He's devout. He's, pi- he's a pious man. Jesus even calls him the teacher of Israel. Here's the premier theologian of Israel coming to Jesus, trying to figure out what he's all about. So Jesus has a conversation with him. And here we begin to see how Jesus evangelizes. We're going to see this again in chapter 4 and chapter 5, how Jesus engages particular individuals. And this is something that's remarkable, I think, in John's gospel when we contrast it with other gospels. is his prolonged engagement with individuals, with people. Jesus is concerned with you. Jesus is concerned with specific people. Christianity is unique because, as John tells us in the opening chapter, God becomes a man. He's a real person, the Word, Jesus Christ, a real individual, and He comes as a real person engaging real people. And what does Jesus do with specific people, with individuals? What does He do? He calls them to faith. He doesn't just call them to check off the right doctrine boxes just to be sure that you're sending to the right beliefs. He calls them to trust in himself. There's something, as Aubrey's pointed out the last couple of weeks, very personal in the way that Jesus is engaging people and inviting them to this relationship. Now, if anyone thought that they were automatically qualified for the life to come, it would have been a guy like Nicodemus, who was a member of the right people group in his eyes. He knew his stuff. He knew the law. But Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 7, Don't marvel, Nicodemus, that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus is saying, even for Nicodemus, it is necessary for him to be born again to enter into God's kingdom. So Jesus here, he's introducing this metaphor of new birth to show this new life that he is bringing, this deep transformation that he has on offer. And this is a way of talking about personal conversion. I remember very well the birth of our child, Eleanor, the immense joy, the sense of newness, and all the sense of mystery, the sense of just fragility. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment. And births are dramatic things, right? Everyone in here has something in common. We've all been born, right? We've all been born into this world. But I bet none of us remember our physical birth. Maybe you do. I would love to talk with you afterwards if you remember that. (laughs) That would be a really interesting story to recount. But we know it happened, right? What's the evidence of that? We're here. We're alive. We're breathing. And I think this will be true of us when we think about the new birth. We may not remember when... We officially passed over into this kingdom and became born again. But we know it happened. Why? What's the evidence? We're here. We're believing. We're trusting Jesus. Something has happened. See, I think one of the ways where we get a little bit off course when we talk about the new birth is when we immediately press the question, okay, well, when? When did this happen? And often, I think what we do is we sort of construct a narrative or experience. It's got to look this particular way, right? 
But notice, Jesus isn't concerned so much with the question of when it happens. He is concerned with the question of, has it happened? It must happen. You see, the new birth is the way into the kingdom. And Jesus says, this is what needs to happen if you're going to follow him, if you're going to be a part of what he's doing. So Jesus chooses this metaphor of new birth to describe this type of dramatic transformation that he is bringing. Look back at chapter 2, verse 23 through 24, right before this passage. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Why did they believe? When they saw the signs that he was doing. But this is so interesting. Verse 24, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what was in the hearts of men. So many folks were seeing these signs that Jesus were doing, and they were saying, that's really interesting. We believe something's going on with Jesus. But interestingly, Jesus sees something incomplete, inadequate about this partial faith, this sort of faith that's based merely on seeing signs. And Nicodemus seems to be one of these people of this group who comes and approaches Jesus, someone who acknowledges, Jesus, we realize there's something special about you, You're doing signs, so you must at least be a teacher. Something's going on with you. But you see, Nicodemus and all these people who are believing based on signs, they needed something else. Because following Jesus is not just about seeing new. It's about being new. It's about being born again. It's about deep transformation. So, the new birth, what is it? Well, It's necessary to enter the kingdom of God. But how does it come? How does this new birth come? Notice Jesus, or excuse me, Nicodemus asked a couple different times, all right, Jesus, how? I hear you saying, you've got to be born again, but how? How does this happen? How can this new birth come? He says this in verses 4 and 9, and we begin to see Nicodemus' confusion. And Jesus, you know, it's interesting. I feel like as I've kind of, wrestled through this passage this week, Nicodemus would have liked to have had some kind of tight formula. Some kind of, okay, here's a two-step process, Nicodemus, on how this can happen, and you too can be born again, right? I feel like Nicodemus is, behind that question is a question of sort of mechanics and technique. Nicodemus, if there was a rule to follow, there was a formula to follow, I think he's the kind of guy who would do it. But Jesus, he doesn't answer it, I think, in the direct way that Nicodemus would have hoped for He kind of comes at this from an angle. And what does he do? Jesus answers it really in two ways. He gives us an image, and he gives us a story. This is how Jesus answered it. He gives us an image. He gives us an image of water and spirit. Nicodemus, he responds almost, I think, comically. All right, Jesus, you say we've got to be born again. Um, How can an old man like me enter his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus is saying, all right, look, come on. Of course, we're not, don't be a literalist on me right now, Nicodemus, right? We're not talking about a literal birth. We're talking about a different kind of birth. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, natural birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit, spiritual birth. Now, it's interesting here, the word used for again and born again is the same word that's also translated from above. Both senses of that word are present as passive. So Jesus is saying, yes, born again, born anew. But there's also a sense that's brought out in this passage of being born from above. Because to be born again is to be born from the Spirit, the Spirit who comes from above. So Jesus, he talks about being born of water and Spirit. 
In the Old Testament, there are prophets like Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 20, 36, who anticipated this time when there would be renewal for God's people. Listen to what Ezekiel says in chapter 36, verse 25, anticipating this new day. When God will sprinkle clean water on you. And God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And Jesus is saying, I think, that day, that day that Ezekiel anticipated is now here. This day when by the Spirit a new heart can be had. So Jesus is saying this new birth, it doesn't come from a formula or technique, it comes from above, it comes from the Spirit. And this promise, this promise of transformation by the Spirit is is marked out by baptism. Now, we could, I think, spend a lot of time talking about water baptism in this passage um, and have all sorts of interesting debates here. But baptism is all around this section of Scripture. John comes baptizing right after this. Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And the point is, whatever your baptismal theology may be, Jesus is linking together closely the sign, baptism, and the thing signified, spirit transformation. And these things mark out that new birth. So Jesus, he's calling Nicodemus, and he's calling us to open up ourselves to mystery. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In Crozet this past Tuesday, it was a beautiful, bright, gorgeous, lovely day, but the wind was absolutely howling. It was coming through like crazy. The building I was sitting in, I was wondering if it was just going to just blow over. It was coming in so fast. Wind is mysterious, right? And this is how the Spirit is. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but we see its effects. We know it is there. So Jesus, I think here, he's saying, look, Nicodemus, this happens through the Spirit. The Spirit is free and sovereign. Jesus is challenging Nicodemus's and our reliance on our own understanding and calls us to open up ourselves to mystery to open up ourselves to the Spirit. Jesus says this Spirit freely and mysteriously moves to bring new life. You can't harness it. Nicodemus, this premier theologian of Israel, he knew a lot of stuff in his head. He was very learned, but what he needed was the Spirit to change his heart. There's a German theologian named Helmut Taliki, and he wrote a little book called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians for seminary students, for those studying theology. And he described what he called, for those studying theology and really kind of um, geared in that way, he, called, he described a diabolical theology that can afflict even the most well-intentioned Christian leaders. He says, it is possible to get your theology right, but get your relationship with God wrong. And I think this can happen when we close ourselves off to mystery, when we're 100% rationalistic in the way we approach our faith. We hide behind our theology and learning, and we miss out. We miss out on the Spirit. We miss out on this transformation. And we can be cynical about things like personal conversion and spiritual transformation and movement to the Spirit. But Jesus says we need to open up ourselves to these things. So, water and Spirit. Jesus says this is how it's how it comes. It comes from the Spirit. But Nicodemus asks again, all right, yeah, Jesus, in verse 9, 
Nicodemus, how can these, he says it again, how can these things be? Jesus, he schools Nicodemus on the Old Testament scriptures that he should have known. Look at verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? The whole idea of a new birth, of spiritual transformation, these things were packed in the Old Testament scriptures that Nicodemus should have known. And so having given the image of water to speak to the origin of the new birth, Jesus answers in another way. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus refers to this episode from Numbers 21, which we read uh, in our Old Testament lesson. God sends fiery serpents as a judgment on God's people for their rebellion. They were grumbling in the wilderness. So the people cried out for help. And God instructs Moses to construct a serpent to put up on a pole. And when he raises it up, the people are called to look at that serpent so that they would live. Now, it's so interesting that Jesus, in answering this question of how is all this going to happen, he refers to this episode. What's Jesus doing here? Well, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, must be lifted up. And how will he be lifted up? He will be lifted up on the cross. St. Augustine wrote about this passage. He said, what is the serpent lifted up? It's the Lord's death on the cross. The serpent's bite was deadly, but the Lord's death is life-giving. What's Jesus saying here to Nicodemus and to us? New life, this new spirit, uh, 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 spirit-created life is ultimately brought and made possible through a death. Through the death of the lifted up Son of Man. Jesus Christ. And this is the first of three times that Jesus uses this language of being lifted up to to point to the death that he's going to die for his people. So Jesus gives a final and climactic answer to Nicodemus' question, I think, of how can this happen, by saying that this is going to happen through the Son of Man being lifted up. The kingdom of God is entered. New birth is made possible through the cross of Christ. And it is received by faith. So verse 15 that whoever believes in him, in the Son of Man, may have eternal life. This isn't the first time in John that John has talked about being born from above. Back in chapter 1, verse 11, John says, To all who did receive him, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were what? Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will, or the flesh of man, but born of God, born of the Spirit, born of from above. So the new birth comes. It comes from above. It comes from the Spirit. But what does all this reveal? What does this new life that comes from new birth show us? If verses 1 through 15 are Jesus' encounter and conversation with Nicodemus, it's like in verse 16, John pulls back and he dresses us, the readers, the hearers. He's saying, okay, here's what all of this means. Here's what's happening here. Here's what the implication of all of this is. The new life made possible by the Spirit and the cross work of Christ, which is assessed by faith, all of this reveals the deep love of God. So here's the most famous verse in the Bible. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this verse comes on the heels of chapter, or of, uh, verses 14 and 15, telling us that Jesus will be lifted up on the cross. This is God sending his son in love to make eternal life, life in the age to come, possible. This is what love looks like. 
This is what real love looks like. This is the heart of God, loving the world that he has created. He loves the world that has been smitten with evil, a humanity given over to sin, and he's bringing healing and salvation to this world through his son. You know, in our divided political and cultural climate, it's interesting. More and more we see again people protesting that we should embrace love, that love is the way, that love will heal our divisions. And there's a genuine desire behind all of this. But for God, love is not a cliche or something on a poster. It's someone on a cross. So you want to know what love looks like. You want to know what the love of God looks like. You look to Jesus, and you see that love, and you can experience that love. You can receive that love. So John's saying, look here. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. No love experience life. Maybe some of you know the hymn, Lift High the Cross, the Love of God Proclaim. I think that's what John is doing here. He's lifting high the love of cross. He's proclaiming, uh, he's proclaiming the love of God. We're being commissioned today as Church of the Holy Cross. We want to live into the mission of this name by lifting up high the cross of Christ in our community. Why? So that people may know, may know the love of God in Christ, and so that people may experience new life in Him. We want to call, we want to summon people to look to the cross and live and find life. The new birth here, it's necessary, Jesus says. It's necessary to enter into the kingdom of God, into this eternal life, into this age to come. This new birth, it comes from above, it comes from the Spirit, and understanding this, we're to open up ourselves to this mystery, to the movement, and to the work of the Spirit. And this work of Christ in bringing about this new birth, this reveals the deep love of God for us. So let us, let us look to the cross. Let us look to the cross and live. Let us look to the cross and know and experience God's love and go out and proclaim it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.